0: If you're not falling, you're not learning. You're not really innovating if you're not making mistakes.
1: Today, I'm joined by the incredible pioneering technologist and entrepreneur Anand Agrawala. His master thesis project was Bump Top, a reimagining of the digital desktop, which allows you to stack, chuck around and crumple up your documents, just as you would do on your own desk at home. After viral success, Anand presented Bump Top at a TED Talk, and it was one of the most viewed technological demos of all time, and the startup was later acquired by Google. Anand went on to be a project manager at Google before embarking on his latest venture, Spatial, an AR-VR collaboration app that turns rooms into 3D workspaces. Spatial is currently taking the world by storm and is set to be a huge part of how we work and how we interact in the future. Now, there's a lot of overlap here with what we're trying to do at Meta in building a completely immersive digital world. And for that reason and many more, I am really excited to be talking to Anand today. So, Anand, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. Doing well.
0: Very well. It's a little cold here in New York, but otherwise doing pretty good.
1: Excellent. We are so excited to welcome you on the podcast, but before we do, I'd love to ask you a series of quick fire questions to get us warmed up. So what does the word innovation mean to you?
0: Something new and crazy and elevating things forward.
1: Best advice you've ever received?
0: Do something new because you're number one by default.
1: Where are you happiest?
0: Oh, man the beach with family uh or underwater i guess <laughs> snorkeling
1: what's the biggest success in your life so far yeah probably bumped
0: up my, my first startup selling that thing to google and at 27 or whatever by turning my master's thesis into that that was we won the nerd stanley cup
1: <laughs> finish this sentence the future is exciting So we're now going to be talking about spatial computing, which is the basis of your company Spatial today. For listeners who might not be completely au fait with the term, let's kick off with a brief introduction. What is it and how does Spatial, the company, use it?
0: Yeah, sure. So spatial computing is really just computing literally within the space around you, using your computer desktop to organize things in different locations. That's using your spatial memory. How people typically refer to spatial computing is really around AR, VR augmented reality, virtual reality, and the whole computer becomes your monitor. The whole world becomes your monitor. You can grab digital objects, you can chase virtual creatures, you can organize little virtual reminders and virtual sticky notes for yourself in your closet to remember to wear this thing tomorrow or what have you. But spatial computing is really this idea that the world around you, the space around you, is now your computing surface.
1: You've always put a big focus on intuitive user experiences and recreating the real world in your apps. And in the past, we've often had to adapt our practices to the technology of the era. Do you think we're actually coming to a place now where technology aligns more to the human experience or will one perpetually inform the other?
0: I think if you take a kid from today, they might feel more native on an iPad or a touch interface than a pencil. It is an interesting conversation that is kind of co-evolving with each other. Technology has become way more design-centered and way more easy to use. If you look at the interfaces of like 80s, 90s, how I used to have to connect to a BBS, it was just so confusing. Command line interfaces. There's just been so much design focus. The big tech companies, for example, design is almost an equal seat at the table as PM and engineering. And sometimes companies like Apple have shown us the power of design-led products. We're getting less and less calls to help fix our parents' printer. I think, yeah, just generally technology is becoming much more highly designed. As technology becomes more mainstream and consumer, you know, there's almost an economic motivator to do that as well. So anyway, I think technology is becoming, yes, much more better designed for sure.
1: So we've got better design, but I know you're also concerned with some of our behaviors around technology. And you've talked about how you think we're already spending too much time on our phones, for example. So how do these considerations inform your current projects? This is a
0: central question and uh, a really challenging one. So, why am I working on ARVR then? You might ask the question. Well, it seems this is the next logical evolution of just our computing surface. Your next computer in a few years is going to be a pair of glasses. And so, Can we get in there and embody it with our humanistic ideals? Can we help technology connect us better to people? You know, for example, like if I'm wearing area glasses, the device can be context aware. You know, it can also help facilitate connection. Like you could be sitting out strangers in a park, you could have a question mark above my head. I'm in a new city and I want someone to help me kind of find directions, right? There are ways for it to potentially foster that. So I think part of why I'm working on this is because I want to help accelerate the progress in this space and and obviously worried about the downsides. It's almost medium is the message. At the platform level, we're going to have to figure some of these things out. For us, in our product, we try to make it as accessible as possible. So we have a big focus on cross-platform. You don't have to buy a headset. You can just use the web. In the same way GeoCities back in the day democratized the internet, everyone could have a free web page, we like to think of ourselves as everybody's free home in the metaverse.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. And Meta shares so many of the the thoughts there that you were just sharing about the need to build with really understanding what, what the guardrails are and how we all work together to work through those right from the get-go. I was also really interested to read about your approach to trusting your intuition and maintaining momentum when you're working. And you've talked about the need to decide quickly. I wanna know, do you ever find yourself struck with indecision?
0: Oh, I mean, what is it like two o 'clock now? Probably like fifty hundred times today basically a recovering perfectionist. perfectionism is like in some ways it 's like a deranged superpower it 's really debilitating, but then it can be really helpful at times so i 've really tried to like learn to channel it i guess there 's a study of organizations and just companies and how effective they are at decision making and what they observed was if you look back at the quality of decisions in the moment it 's kind of hard to tell what the right decision or answer really is. And sometimes there is no real answer. The companies that won and succeeded over the long term were ones that decided quickly. Because if you decide quickly, you can actually update your decisions and thinking as you need to because the market's so dynamic. Another quote that I love from Frank Gehry, the architect, you'll have an idea and you'll put out his first draft. It won't be very good. And then he'll be like, okay, but there's something in there that I can kind of build on and let me just go with that and kind of keep riffing kind of thing. So these are little anecdotes I use to try to overcome my perfectionism for sure. But I do think you got to be thoughtful, but you want to have the right balance to have velocity. I think velocity is you know critically important.
1: So one of the decisions you made was to allow people to use the spatial platform for free during COVID. And you described it as a bid to aid economic progression and a lifeline to companies trying to stay afloat. How do you see Spatial fitting into the gradual return to work as the world opens up?
0: Just to give a little bit of background, you jump into spatially from your 2D photo, you would get a 3D avatar, and you could feel like you're physically in the same room as people. With an AR headset, they actually literally are sitting in the chair right next to you, and it's quite compelling. But you needed a, a three to $5,000 headset to use it. And when COVID hit, we're like, there's a need out there that, for folks to use this thing. And so let's put it out for free and see what happens. So we had like a 200X Growth spike, I think, during COVID. Now, what we found was, which is quite interesting, is that for meetings and collaboration, Zoom was pretty good. It's one click. It's simple. You don't have to put on a headset. What wasn't well served by Zoom and what has actually become a interesting growth ramp for us is all kinds of other virtual spaces. So I mentioned literally people created virtual churches and they, they met in there for service, for example, or virtual headquarters. Companies would make virtual headquarters where they could kind of mill about and have those casual kind of interactions. Virtual art galleries, that's been a massive segment for us, for sure, where people can, especially NFT collectors, can visualize their galleries and bid on stuff, all that kind of thing. So things that you can't really do on traditional video conferencing, that has been a huge segment. So I think that's evolving. And I think the the tools that seem to be really strong, there are like Slack, Zoom, those sorts of pieces. I think once the headsets get mainstream, then you're really going to start to see some of these things that we've built kind of become more mainstream. But I think all these other components outside work, I think, are being rethought. And our tool, which is literally create whatever kind of space you want you can either pull in a 3D model or, or you can use one of our existing ones and, and, and configure it and build it how you want. That is being repurposed and reused for all the other stuff we used to kind of get on a plane to do galleries, concerts, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So just to pick up on the, the point around the church groups and also the different communities that came together during the, the pandemic, often to combat loneliness. Was that something that you intended or envisaged when you launched?
0: Not at all. I mean, it was, we launched as an enterprise tool with Pfizer and Mattel. And it was so like heartwarming to to find that people were using spatial for kind of that spiritual connection that was lost. PTSD soldiers who were stationed overseas meeting virtually with pastors in a virtual church that that was just super touching. And just the use cases, we were all kind of stuck in a corner here with COVID. And I mean, there's just so many beautiful examples. People were using it for a VR shark tank, for example. They were like pitching their VR ideas in VR. And it's just the, the number of use cases is just staggering. It's so exciting. It's I mean, it's really the 3D Internet. When the Internet started, it's like, OK, we're going to have a web page for cat socks or something or, you know, and just this crazy, vibrant community of people just building wild stuff. It's, it's we're starting to see that in a 3D capacity, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. But is the social impact side something that you're going to continue to pioneer in in future work? We would absolutely
0: love to. Our mechanism for doing that, making sure it's free, easy to use, I think also simple to pick up for beginners. We're a no-code tool. You don't need to learn how to code. And that's what's really exciting because you're getting all kinds of different voices coming through here because our tool is just literally, you come in, you can type in, give me campsite, and, and then you get a 3D model of a campsite. That I think is how we can maybe try to, you know, be a platform as broad as folks as possible. We're actually very international and huge surge from folks in Thailand. There was a big Loy Krathong festival, it turns out. We didn't know that. And there's this big annual festival that people were celebrating virtually online and we had a huge spike in traffic. But that's, I think, a piece where it isn't one of Meta's taglines, defy distance and do things that they couldn't do. I think that's that's how we are going to contribute.
1: Let's talk about your management style. I love the simplicity of your approach to managing teams. You said hire smart people, fire them up and empower them. How does that approach play out practically at Spatial?
0: Uh, Yeah, it works, I think, reasonably well. It can be a little chaotic, for sure. You've got all these super smart people doing a whole bunch of awesome stuff. The challenge is making sure everyone's pointed in the right direction and actually making velocity and impact on our higher level goals. And I think over the five years of the company, we've definitely tried to evolve from like, okay, super motivated people on the ground to also in a concerted fashion where we're actually making sure we make progress and traction on our high level goals and that constant zooming in um, to the kind of ground level of what people are doing and zooming out as well.
1: Okay, so that was kind of focusing on where we are today. I want to go back in time. And I was reading about the lengths that your parents went to provide the very best opportunities for you and your family. And you've talked about being willing to be gritty and grind it out to succeed. Do you think that this is something that came from your parents?
0: Yeah, absolutely. My parents started in the in the Dust Bowl of India near Delhi, near Agra. And, you know, my dad was this ambitious guy who, you know, lower middle class in India who wanted to be an artist, got kicked out of the house to do so because he just loved it so much. And like he was a starving artist in India in the 50s, 60s, you know, and then he had an opportunity to move to Nigeria of all places to uh, try to make a better life. And it was really like that kind of entrepreneur twinkle in his eye kind of thing to make it happen. And then we had the opportunity to move to Canada to try to get a better education for us. And from there, I saw him my mom mom Try to make ends meet, and my dad was like trying to run a business and stuff, and just observed from a young age that kind of immigrant grit hey, we're here, let's make this work absolutely impacted me, and definitely is a big piece of kind of who I am today.
1: And what other influences have you had through your life that have made you determined to succeed? I've been
0: pretty lucky, I've had almost through every phase in life a couple different mentors. In high school, I had this mentor, he was a teacher. And we just kind of hit it off. Mr. Shigani, he's a good friend of mine. He was running the school newspaper, and I think he saw that I was like desktop publishing and that because I was working on my parents' print shop. And we started gravitating, and he opened my mind up to philosophy and and anarchism. He's a big Chomsky, Nietzsche fan, and just the broader world of knowledge. He was the cool teacher at the school, so he was always exposed to all this kind of breadth of information and not really letting me rest on what I was being taught just normally, but just having critical thinking and, and really pushing things. In university, my professor who is the super professor for Bump Top, Ravan Balakrishnan, he was great too. I mean, I think the thing he taught I me, mean, this is one of my big lessons, is if you're working in a brand new space, you're number one by default. So it's better to do that because you just get number one for free than trying to be a better, you know, mousetrap kind of thing, right? So these are definitely some influences. And yeah, you get, you get to be number one for free even if you suck. So.
1: And it must have been absolutely thrilling to have had such early success with Bump Top. And I mentioned it was part of your master's thesis. Tell us about that time.
0: I remember when I got into the University of Toronto, I saw this the PhD theses, master's thesis sitting on the shelves there collecting dust. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to be one of those. I want my thesis to mean something. I want it to be memorable and have impact. And I remember like after I graduated, I was I was at this other job. And I got a call from Fox News randomly and they're like, hey, is this the bumped up guys? And what is this thing? Is it a hoax? Is it whatever? And I was just so confused. Why is Fox News calling me? And I put down the phone and then... Later, I get an email from my university, University of Calgary saying, hey, our server went down because there's too many people trying to download your video at once. And I was like, what? Really? That's crazy. What? What? Why are people downloading my, my master's thesis video? And eventually, I realized, oh, this is blowing up. It was number one on YouTube in the first uh, day or two. And... That, I mean, I was getting a call from Steve Jobs to come and uh, work at Apple and on the iPhone and got invited to TED getting get the phone to Japan. It was just it was such an incredible time. I was just this kid from Calgary that the whole world was kind of opening to me. It was an incredible time. It was just it was it was wild. I, I got to meet like so many heroes like Larry Page and Sergey were at TED and it was just a mind blowing.
1: No, It sounds absolutely incredible. But I was also really fascinated to hear that before studying human-computer interaction, you were actually considering film school. Do you actually think there's any parallels between film and what you're doing now?
0: I think in a lot of ways, what we're doing is visual storytelling. And I wish that interfaces would be more cinematic. At Spatial, we're working in the metaverse. We're trying to convey a 3D space in a 2D square on your screen, that's really the problem of cinema in a way. How do you frame, how do you compose, how do you tell the story in that? And I think, I mean, cinematic interfaces generally, I think and hope is the next frontier of of user interface design. The era we went through is getting user interface to be simple and easy to even understand the functional era, I would love if we moved to like a cinematic era. Like I feel like when the iPhone came out, everything was fun and juicy and like on the Mac, the expose would happen and this this cool zooming interface thing would happen or timeline feature, which just zooms into the past, into a galaxy. Some of that stuff was a little crazy and skeuomorphic, but I do miss that imagination in interfaces.
1: Yeah. And you, you've also said it's important to know when to innovate and when to take a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it approach. On one project, you found you lost time developing gesture controls that weren't actually helpful for the end user. So have you made other mistakes that have ultimately led to beneficial lessons?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Well, you know, that is a thing I grapple with, actually, that point you brought up. Because if you asked me 10 years ago, for me, it was like, it doesn't matter if it's not broke. Just innovate everything. Don't settle for a standard list view, a standard tabbed interface or whatever. Don't use any of that stuff. And that was in the era of mobile computing when on the iPhone people were reimagining everything. And that was really the era that I was thinking of. But then what I realized, especially in a startup context, and in some ways, I feel like I'm cheating my older self, because my older self would come on, man, to come up with something new and innovate. And what I find now is like, we're trying to actually solve the end purpose. And therefore, it's okay to cheat a little bit and use an existing pattern to help you get to your end goal.
1: So do you see failure as a necessary part of innovation?
0: I think you got to. I mean, I'm Canadian, so I'm going to use a hockey analogy. Like, if you're not falling, you're not learning. You're not really innovating if you're not making mistakes, right? I think, like, again, to drop another Larry thing, if you're not uncomfortably excited by what you're building, then you're doing something wrong. So I think you absolutely have to. I mean, and the riskier and more innovative you try to be, you're for sure going to make, maybe failures is the wrong word, or maybe it's too strong. It's just, hey, it's a, it's a bad try. It's that Frank Gehry, you know, quote. It's like, you tried something, some of it worked, some of it didn't. I've been doing spatial for five years. We have lots of stuff that didn't quite work, but some idea in that will come back around and we can use it later for something else, right? I think Thomas Heatherwick, one of your countrymen, is a amazing, one of my favorite architects. They do that all the time. They play and experiment with mechanics. How do we solve this problem or this staircase? Sometimes it'll just be a toy in their workshop, but that problem will maybe come to them in a project in six to 12 months. And, and they'll, like, oh yeah, we can use that thing we tried that didn't quite work for this piece, but... Yeah, I think there's a bit of transposability to it.
1: Okay, and we're now going to roll forward 10 years from now. And you said in an interview that spatial computing will be the OS of the future. 3D computing will become ingrained in the way that we interact with computers and each other across any line of business in any industry and accessible through any device. And that's the view we share when we talk about the metaverse. We think virtual spaces that you're going to be able to explore with people who may be thousands of miles from you will be the successor to the mobile Internet. How far away do you think this version of the future is?
0: That's a great question. I think 10 years if you want to be safe. I think five years if you're lucky. Beyond that, I think the tipping point is really having... The hardware that you are using as your primary computer. Your iPhone. I think when the iPhone came out, people weren't spending eight hours a day on it. But now, sometimes it's the only computer people bring with them, or sometimes it's the only computer people even have. And that's where you really saw that tipping point, right? I think when there's a switching cost, if I have to put on a headset to have an experience, but if I'm already wearing the headset because it's my computer, I think that that changes things. So. I think probably sometime between five and 10 years, your headset or a pair of glasses is going to be your next computer. And when that happens, everything you do today on mobile, on TV, your, your laptop, that's all going to be reimagined in a 3D and spatial context. FaceTime is now going to become 3D. Wikipedia is now going to become immersive in all of these simple things. Watching movies, you're going to be in the movie. All of these things are going to get reimagined, which is which is super exciting.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited about where we're going to get to. But what obstacles do you see in us stopping us from reaching there?
0: Well, I think the biggest one is the physics, like technical perspective from getting to an all-day wearable device. You know, you've got to have, that means the battery has to be big enough that it can fit on your head, but also support that. But, and also if you you want really cool graphics and, and lots of capabilities, but that generates heat from the compute and you don't want to have this super hot thing on your head. And then you also want something lightweight, like your pair of Ray-Bans. But if you want an immersive field of view, you actually need a bigger pair of glasses. So it's really balancing all those things. Battery and heat, I think, are the biggest culprits of making this happen. I think if we could magically solve the battery and heat problem, I think we'd have that all-day wearable stuff today now you can see it and you can prototype it with a MetaQuest 299 and it's a great vr headset and you can really draw the line of how some of those interfaces would work and now that pass through is launched you can see how like now ar is going to come in the mix uh, as well and so that's quite exciting
1: what about the opportunities that it's going to bring
0: Oh, I mean, every single app on your phone. We took inspiration from the iPhone when we started Spatial because the iPhone, it launched with a couple of basic apps, but that were completely rethought ways of what you used to do. So Maps, it became this fun tactile thing. You could swing around and all those Pins would fall from the ground. Photos became this tactile thing where you could swipe and pinch and zoom. These things were new before, these pinches and zooms and things like that. YouTube was this immersive thing. Your music collection, they got rid of it now, but it was this carousel picker that felt like vinyl. And so literally imagine that Same evolution, revolution for every app you use today. So you iMessage a lot or you use Zoom. Well, that'll actually teleport right behind beside you and you can chat with them in person. You're checking out an Airbnb listing. Well, you can literally feel like you're going there inside the Airbnb. You are watching a movie. Yeah, you're in the movie. So every basic building block uh, in every basic app. And it's really fun to think about, okay, what if Find My Friends, for example... That'll become Cerebro and X-Men, where I can literally see all my friends in the world and I can zoom over to Vancouver where a friend of mine is or something. And it's just, yeah, it's crazy exciting. I think, yeah, imagine every app on your phone and what becomes. And the other, the other piece of that is some apps we haven't even thought of yet. Uber didn't really make sense back before mobile phone, right? But now that you have this thing with you all the time, there's a new set of apps that are going to come that are native to immersive interfaces and spatial computing that are also pretty exciting.
1: Now, you've said that the work you're doing right now is a chance to leave fingerprints on history. How will you know when you've achieved that goal?
0: Oh, wow. That is a good question. It's hard to say because it, it's you really want generational impact, a.k.a. you have an impact after you're gone. And so I don't know how I'm going to know that uh, after I'm dead that this stuff made a difference. But I suppose some early indicators would be you're seeing widespread adoption, so just t- tons of usage, People using it and, and modifying it for new purposes and things like that, but it's a hard one to measure in your current lifetime, isn't it? If you've been a, if you've been a success, hopefully we're not gonna like Van Gogh and don't sell a painting while we're alive thing, but
1: <laughs> I'm sure that won't be the case. But I want to talk more about your concept. Is is it the hollow office? Is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah, or hollow office. Yeah, okay, yeah, the hollow, hollow office. office yeah yeah, and how these virtual workspaces are going to change how we work, how we commute, how we live. How do you think it's going to shape our lives in the future?
0: Yeah, you know, I think literally the idea of the whole office was basically your office is in a pair of glasses. So you throw on a pair of glasses, and hey, I'm at in the office when and if you're actually in the physical office, half the people will be holograms sitting at their desks. For now, I'm in an office in New York post COVID half the folks are working remote. It kind of sucks that their only presence to me is either a tile on a zoom screen or a Slack Slack message. That's the only way I experience their presence now and vice versa. And in the hollow office, you'd literally look around the office and there'd be some people sitting at their desks and there'd be some holograms sitting at their desk working away. And ideally it's fairly seamless. And that's pretty interesting. I think, you know, Spaces begin to change. What is the ideal architecture to facilitate more virtual presence? Do you need to have a full-on desk for this person that's just a hologram, for example? What is the right shape? Do we want to actually have rooms the same shape so that if they have the same desk layout, then literally these teleport rooms can be in multiple locations. You can have people sitting in the various seats, and it'll feel like they're sitting in the same desk. Two major ways it can change work is that if you get rid of the distance and commute, then you don't have to live in a certain place to get the same education or the same access to employment, because now you can be anywhere theoretically. So that potentially dramatically changes the world. The other thing is we've added a smart translate feature so you can speak any language and it'll actually translate on the fly. And so I think distance and language were two of the biggest barriers for widespread workplace, being able to employ anybody and and really breaking down those borders. So those will be two pretty dramatic shifts as well that are potentially enabled by virtual immersive computing.
1: So with these shifts that you're talking about, can you actually see a time where the majority of our interactions occur almost completely in a virtual space?
0: I mean, yeah, 2020, COVID, when I was on a Zoom hours a day. (laughs) It's really, I mean... It's, I feel we're there. It's not 3D, but it's not to be facetious, but really it's now we used to be a company, for example, Spatial, we're 30 folks and we have so folks in SF and 15 or so folks in New York and the rest remote. Now it's 50% remote. And as soon as a couple people go remote, now every meeting's a Zoom meeting because you have to accommodate the folks who aren't in the office. And so it's, I think it's already here. I think the thing that'll change is that it'll become more immersive and hopefully less draining. I think we've all been on those days where we're just on eight hours of Zoom meetings a day, just there's a lot of stress just staring at rectangles and at your computer for that long. It's not really the best human factor. So I think the headsets could potentially help with that, for example. But really, I think it's already there. I mean, it's I think the use of virtual presence, if you will, post-COVID has obviously skyrocketed, I think.
1: I'm also interested in the impact that spatial will have on the environment. Meeting virtually rather than physically, as we've all been doing, really has helped to reduce global carbon emissions. How much does the potential positive environmental impact of spatial factor into your plans?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, well, for one, absolutely defined distance, not having to travel, period, for business, for home life. I think that is going to if we can take a chunk of, of carbon emissions for flights, that is massive. I think the other thing is as we start to support NFTs, for example, and 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 be more crypto native, there are certain kind of blockchains that are, are not necessarily environmentally efficient because of proof of work. Uh, we want to be a, a good steward there, and also I mean basically enable the use of environmentally efficient crypto technologies, proof of stake and things, and yeah, continue to drive that mission forward there.
1: And education and healthcare are two important sectors for you currently. Where are you going next? What are you looking to?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I think the last last six months or so have been quite eye-opening because basically what's happened is with the explosion in Web3 and NFTs, that is probably our hottest growing segment. People are basically building virtual NFT galleries. It feels like you're in Europe. They've got these pretty amazing soaring ceilings. And it almost looks like it was designed by Frank Gehry, just to give him some more, give him another plug. But the NFT community has flocked to Spatial to build custom spaces. The idea of digital real estate itself, we're actually in in a couple of weeks launching virtual environments that you'll be able to buy as an NFT, for example. But that community has been really interesting. I think what we're excited about, too, is Providing a on-chain interoperable marketplace, so those those NFTs, those worlds that you or rooms you can buy in Spatial, you'll be able to use them on any metaverse because it'll all be on-chain, it'll all be interoperable. All our file formats will be open and decentralized, and I think that's really exciting and pro-consumer because now you don't have to buy stuff from five different kind of marketplaces. It's all just one thing, and we we hope for an interoperable metaverse. We hope to build that with you guys. We think we need for an interoperable metaverse interoperable links. So I want to be able to be in one metaverse, jump to another one but I want to be able to be in spatial and jump to Fortnite, for example and I want to keep my identity and my avatar in those situations and then I want things digital goods I buy to be interoperable there if I buy a, a cool axe in Fortnite, I want to be able to jump into spatial with this with my friends and and check out uh, a virtual watch party or check out a virtual gallery and have that same axe and have my same identity thing so I'm really excited about that and I think just generally the metaverse category for us has really exploded. I think thanks to, in part, Meta's leadership there, there's a ton of interest in just building virtual spaces and and exploring that. Those are the, the two big areas for us in the future.
1: I love it. But for leaders out there whose businesses aren't quite at the 3D tech stage yet, what are the three things that they should be doing to move them forward to embrace the new technology?
0: Yeah, I think experiment. I think the key thing is just to start trying this stuff and start to learn. So I think experiment and support a team, allocate budget for that sort of thing, build and try stuff there. I think if you want to be digitally native, you should start building in the metaverse, even if you don't exactly know what that means for you. Big companies have, I think, had success finding young startups, for example, who are much more digitally native, Web3 native, say, help show them the kind of ways. I think that's another great way to get up to speed, because this is the thing that's going to transform your business and folks really need to understand it. and I think they can dip their toe um, with some of those ways i mentioned
1: and you've successfully brought digital innovation and design to a traditional real world space with bump top and spatial is there anything else that you'd like to update for the digital age
0: oh interesting yeah okay this is one that i was i've, I've been thinking about is basically one of the things we try to do with spatial is when we feel really maximally creative we get into our flow state things ideas just come and we're just executing without thinking is there a way to best support that in spatial? Is there a way where I can achieve that flow state? Sometimes a collective flow state. When you see a hockey team moving up the ice, non-verbal communication, they're not talking, but they just know where each other's going to be. They're almost moving as one unit and organism. Can you have that virtually with other people? Is there a way to have a virtual collective flow state where you're all collaborating, jazz musicians riffing or what have you, building something creatively? but supported in a digital environment we we know how people do that in the in the physical environment but how do you do that digitally and then the evolution of that is how do you add a digital assistant into that? How do you digitally augment that? So the power of what you can do goes even further. You know, those electric bicycles, they don't give you power all the time. They give it to you when it's hardest to pedal and it just makes you pedal so much faster. Can we use computing to augment our thinking that way? I need to, humans are bad at memory. Let's use a computer for that piece. For example, we're always Googling stuff to get added information. Let's augment that way. So a collective flow state with digital augmentation to really help us accelerate our thinking, I think is potentially really exciting.
1: Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and expertise today. And I am sure I speak on behalf of all of our listeners when I say it's been absolutely fascinating to hear about your approach to building technology and also your vision for the future. And to our listeners, if you'd like to hear more from Facebook IQ, please do sign up for our newsletter at fb.me forward slash FBIQ newsletter or click the link in the show notes. Until next time. If like me, you're fascinated by how really successful people think, then there's a podcast that you should check out called Secret Leaders. You can learn how top entrepreneurs have built businesses like Joe Malone, Monzo, Natural Cycles and LastMinute.com. Secret Leaders takes you deep inside the world of these founders and half of them are women. What were their childhoods like? What was the spark for that great idea? What was their worst moment? like having to fire your mum. Yep, that really did happen to one of their guests. The podcast is called Secret Leaders and I think you'll love it. Check it out wherever you find your podcasts.